Okay, so we've reached chapter five of book two of Mere Christianity, or I believe it's going to be part the 10 or chapter 10, if you were to look at the book as a I whole. I chapter n- I'm pretty nine. sure we already did nine. Okay, I'm going to look you at the check. index here, figure it out. Practical conclusion is chapter 10. Yep. Yep. Chapter 10, the practical conclusion. We've reached becoming a Christian, right? The last chapter was talking about how it, what exactly is happening when you become a Christian, how that works. And now we're talking about what do you do next? What's the next step, right? Um, and yeah, so this chapter probably has definitely my favorite line in the book this far. Um, and we'll see, Walter, if you can guess what that is. <laughs> I already did a brief skim. I'm not sure, but yeah. I'm excited <laughs> to hear what you've got to say. Welcome to Talking with Intention, a Christian podcast about self-betterment through meaningful conversation. I'm Michael Collins. My co-host is Walter Somerville, and in every episode, we sit down to talk about something that we find meaningful or something that we're still trying to figure out. We're not experts. We just believe that life is better when we're intentional about it. I hope you love the show. But yeah, the practical conclusion here. So what are we supposed to do? What happens after we become Christians? How do we look at the rest of our lives from this point forward, right? Right, and specifically thinking about, you know, last chapter was titled The Perfect Penitent, right? Talking about Jesus dying on the cross. You know, somehow it works. It takes our sin and allows us to enter into a relationship with God. So what's the next step then? What does the beginning of Christian life look like and mean um, is what this chapter is about. The first paragraph here, he starts talking about a view of, you know, one thing he says is people often ask when the next step in evolution, the step to something beyond man will happen. But in the Christian view, it has happened already. In Christ, a new in Christ, a new kind of man has appeared. And the new kind of life which began in him is to be put into us. So Christians talk about this a lot. Um, there's, you know, we talk about beginning a new life in Christ. The old has passed away. The new life has come, right? We are a new creation. You find these kind of sayings all throughout the new Testament. Um, and I didn't underline anything here, but it made me kind of think about, uh, it reminded me of Frederick Nietzsche and his uber ubermensch yeah his overman his superman, superman that he talks about in beyond good and evil he was yeah. talking about this idea of a, his version of the next step in evolution of humanity is a man who can create his own meaning create yeah. his own life purpose um and we don't need to get into nietzsche this is about lewis's book right but that just it reminded me of that view um and I think where Nietzsche fell short is he was right in that pe- people need meaning and he was wrong in the idea that people can create it for themselves. Yeah. Right. Yeah. It may be a little bit of a, a imaginative interpretation, but it kind of makes me think of like a zombie mood. This talking about Jesus being like the first, um, 
one to have this new kind of life, this next step in human evolution. It kind of makes me think of like a zombie movie or something with patient zero or something. That's where it all started. Um, and it spread from there. Um, and he goes on to how talks about the Christ life, this new life, um, and how it has spread to us. Um, and one thing that he talks about, he says there are three things that spread the Christ life to us, baptism, belief, and that mysterious action, which different Christians call by different names, Holy Communion, the Mass, the Lord's Supper, that kind of thing. Um, and, and when I first read that, I wasn't quite sure what exactly he was getting at. And then I realized that it's Lewis again. See, <laughs> I was like, oh man, he's he really taken a strong stance on what exactly is required for somebody to be saved, yeah. you know, because I know there are Christians who believe that you have to be baptized physically with water to be saved, or you have to be baptized a certain way. Some people dunk, you know, underwater, some people sprinkle water, and, you know, some Christians believe you have to go to church on Saturday instead of Sunday to be saved. You know, people have done all sorts of things. I, I don't see it that way personally. Um, but that's kind of where at first where I thought maybe Lewis was going. And then I remembered that it's Lewis and he doesn't get into very much about Christian yeah. theology. He prefers to just convince people that God is real and loves them and get them to believe in him. Um, and so he continues through that, that, through that paragraph and he points out, he says, my Methodist friend would like me to say more about belief and less in proportion about the other two but I am not going into that. Anyone who professes to teach you Christian doctrine will in fact tell you to use all three and that is enough for our present purpose. You know, and so that's the thing, all three of these are good things, right? Baptism, belief, and communion or mass or the Lord's Supper, whatever you want to call it. Those are all three good things and every Christian is going to tell you to do all three of those things, right? Like, I don't believe that you have to be physically dunked underwater yeah. in order to be accepted into as part of the Lord's kingdom. But that doesn't mean I'm going to tell you not to do that. I still believe that that is a very good thing to do is to go and get baptized, right? So it's the same conclusion, even if somebody over here tells you that you have to do that to be saved, and I'm telling you, you don't have to do it to be saved, yeah. but it's, still, you still should do still it. It's a good idea, um, a helpful thing. So, yeah, the conclusion is go and get baptized either way, you know. I like how he compares it. You know, all three of these things are kind of mysterious, seems like a strange way to get this new life, right? And he keeps calling it the Christ life, which I really like that terminology. So it seems like it's strange that we'd have these three kind of weird acts and ceremonies almost to get the Christ life. Mm -hmm. um, but he draws a cool parallel to how we got our physical life, our biological life, right? Yeah. Um, and it, <laughs> I like how he talks about it. You know, it happens by a strange and mysterious process, which uh, you wouldn't have guessed if you had to come up with it yourself. You know, he talks about how, like, most kids spend a great deal of time trying to figure out what it is and when they're told what it actually is you know how life is created they sometimes don't believe it because it's a strange thing and so mm -hmm. the way we get our christ life this new kind of life is also mysterious and kind of weird yeah. <laughs> and i love that he points that out he doesn't just try to you know plow forward and say oh yeah that's just how it is he acknowledges 
this is some strange stuff, you know? There's some things that are mysterious here. It's weird. And I love the line. Um, he says, he did not consult us when he invented sex. He has not consulted us either when he invented this, right? God does things his own way. He's God. He's allowed to do yeah. that, right? That's not your favorite line, though, is it? No, that's okay. not my favorite line. Yeah. And of those three, so belief, baptism, and then I know it most as communion, but yeah, the Lord's Supper. Which one of those three do you recognize it most as? Holy Communion, uh, Mass, or the Lord's Supper? I always Supper? called it Communion, yeah. but I would have known what people were talking about if they said Mass or the Lord's Supper as yeah. well. It's just terminology, I feel like. But of those three, I realized like belief and baptism, I was like, oh yeah. And then Communion came way out of left field for me. I was like, what? Yeah. Why would that be one of the main three ways that we get this Christ life? And I think... A big part of it is just from growing up in a Christian camp setting. And those first two, belief and baptism, are like the very first steps. Mm -hmm. Um, You know, most denominations, I think most, I'm not a very good scholar here, but I think most denominations agree you shouldn't take the Lord's Supper or communion if you're not saved. Mm -hmm. And so growing up in a Christian camp and everything, we hear and we talk a lot about Oh, yeah. Well, you you believe and you're baptized. That's how you get saved, you know, dealing in this ministry with kids. But we don't really talk very much about communion with any of the kids because, you know, that's kind of a next step. But it is, I thought that was interesting that it's kind of the continuation, the active, not renewal, but keeping it actively new for yourself to you know, continually. I I was not sure how I was feeling or how much I was agreeing with him uh, as he continued to write, this is how we get the Christ life. Because it sounded too much like this is how we get a relationship with Christ or this is how we become saved is with all three of these things. And I personally view it as you're saved. All those who confess with their mouth that Jesus is Lord and believe in their heart, you know, that God raised him from the dead will be saved, right? That's what the yeah. Bible says, or at least something very close to that. And so that's how I viewed it was the belief is the most important part. And I guess that's where I fall in line with Lewis's Methodist yeah. friend <laughs> who wants you to talk more about the belief than the other two things, you know, but there's a line, I'm jumping ahead. Um, there's a part where he, he kind of makes, gives me a little bit more perspective on what I think he is meaning here. Um, thing that made as the chapter goes on it seemed to become that seemed clearer to me that lewis was talking when he refers to the christ life he wasn't referring to becoming saved as i think he covered that in the last chapter he's talking more about growing as a christian becoming more christ-like and you know growing developing this relationship with christ which i would agree yeah all three of those things do that yeah, more of the growing and developing mm-hmm. rather than the actual conception almost. Yeah. You know, if we're going to make that parallel. Um, I like, you know, he talks about um, these three things. You know, it seems kind of odd. How do we come up with them? And he says, well, um, it seems that this is what Christ taught his followers, right? Is all three of these things he mentioned at some point in his ministry were important parts of keeping up this new kind of life. You know, he led by example as well um, in all three of them, which 
I thought was pretty interesting. And so taking it on his authority um, that these are the important parts of growing and maintaining this new life that we've been given. Um, And it's kind of a sidetrack. Yeah. Paragraph here. He talks about what it means to take something on authority. Because that is, I'm glad that he did this, honestly, because I have heard that as a criticism of Christianity and belief in God as in general is, oh, you just believe, just choosing to believe these things that somebody wrote down thousands of years ago, right? But Lewis points out, and this is one thing that I underlined, 99% of the things you believe are believed on authority, right? He says, I believe there's a place as as such a place as New York, I have not seen it myself. I could not prove by abstract reasoning that there must be such a place. I believe it because reliable people have told me so. Yeah. Right. And yeah, it really just points out like you hear that just taking it on authority. And it sounds like such a bad thing until you realize you have to take things on authority to yeah. function in the world. That's, you yourself have such a narrow view of the world. You've seen so little, few things that you have to take things on authority from other people. And yeah. That's how they'll stand up and it'll make sense, mm-hmm. but you've got to take it on authority. And that's how human knowledge grows, right? We don't have to rediscover every single scientific fact that we've discovered over the last 2000 years, right? Because other people have already done that research and written about it and we can build off of that. If we weren't willing to believe things on authority, we couldn't build on anything that anyone has learned before us. I mean, like I've never seen a brain. I've never seen my brain. I don't, you know, but I pretty sure I've got one and you know, that just kind of yeah, I mean, if you, the more you think about it, you realize you have to believe things on authority, which is just what Lewis is pointing out here, getting ahead of that criticism, I guess. One thing that he wrote that I'm not sure I agree with 100%, but again, it's it depends on exactly what he means here. Lewis says, in the same... Well, I'll, I should back up. Um, your natural life is derived from your parents. That does not mean it will stay there if you do nothing about it. You can lose it by neglect, or you can drive it away by committing suicide. In the same way, a Christian can lose the Christ life which has been put into him, and he has to make efforts to keep it, right? Like, you have to, you have to feed yourself to sustain your own life. You have to take care of your Christ life. And I was like, okay, is he saying that you're going to lose your salvation yeah. if you don't do enough, you know, which I don't agree with. Um, and I'm not trying to turn this into a discussion of that theology, I guess, because some Christians do believe that you can lose it. <laughs> yeah, um, I was thinking the same thing when I read that, though. But there, it did make me think of one Bible verse that I wrote underneath, which says, faith without works is dead, yeah. right? And again, I don't believe that that means you lose your salvation if you're not doing works. Um but I, I think it's more of a representation in that if somebody who has a relationship with God, somebody who has given their life over to him, like you're just, you're naturally going to want to do things that please him. You're, you know, and it's not a thing of, well, if you don't go out and do good works, your faith is going to die. Yeah. It's just that if you aren't doing good works, you probably don't have that relationship yes. to begin with. I mean, that's, it's just the natural response and again it doesn't mean that if you mess up if you're not always doing something good you're, you know i'm not trying to get make you 
feel guilty if you are making mistakes, and neither is Lewis. He goes on, and I underline this part. He says, A Christian is not a man who never goes wrong, but a man who is enabled to repent and pick himself up and begin over again after each stumble. That's got to be your fa- that's got to be your favorite one, is it? Is that your favorite line? No, not yet. Not yet. Oh, that's a good one. I like that one a <laughs> that lot. That is a very good one. Um, <laughs> now here's here comes my favorite line. It's in the paragraph below that. We're not jumping ahead too far. I mean, we we've been jumping around a little bit right, already, but these two go together, and it's kind of along the same line of thinking. Um, and I think it shows that Lewis is not talking about legalism and he doesn't view it as if you don't do enough good things, you're, you're going to lose your salvation, you're going to lose God's love. Because he says, he does not think God will love us because we are good, but that God will make us good because he loves us. That's my favorite line, right? And it's because, you know, if you've never heard this before, you know, you, you already have 100% of God's love. There's nothing you could do that's so good that would make God love you any more. There's nothing you can do that's so bad it would make him love you any less. You already have 100% of God's love. And because of that, he makes you good. That's my favorite line. Yeah. And it's so tricky because we, our human understanding of it switches it around and makes our goodness and our works um and the result of that is the faith or the relationship or God's love, right? But it's switching it around. The start here is God's love and his relationship with us. And the result is our, our lives, a change in our lives, right? And goodness coming out of that. Yeah, I like going back to the line talking about how a Christian is not someone who never sins, um, but someone who can pick themselves back up and and point themselves back towards God afterwards is uh, I really like the peril the illustration he gives of like a live body is able to heal itself you know yes. we get hurt all the time we scrape ourselves we you know sometimes pretty majorly major injuries but a live body can always um, heal it. it has this amazing ability but if you lose that life, altogether it's not able to heal itself and so that's the you know the parallel here is the difference between a christian and a non-christian it's not that we never get injured or that we never sin it's that we can we can restore that relationship or rather god can restore that relationship no matter how many times you mess up it's not the end of the story you can always turn it around yeah just thinking about uh the church's place in society and I feel like there's a lot of like resentment and hurt from Christians being imperfect people, yeah. which is a shame. But Christians are people, flawed, um, and still definitely make mistakes. Um, and so I think, you know, I feel like this is another thing that that non-Christians will point out about Christians, like, man... You guys if you, you say you believe talk, this, yeah. but you're still failing to do this thing, you're still going yeah. out and doing this. And, and really, I want to agree with them. It's yeah. a shame. It's like, yeah, we shouldn't be doing that. We it's, are it's falling and broken. But yeah, that's the whole gospel, is that we are broken. We can't yeah. 
be perfect. We need God. Yeah, and also the importance of not setting up the Christians as the Christ, mm-hmm. right? So not expecting even good Christians, pastors and and elders in the church to be the perfect examples and yeah. the perfect leading the perfect Christ life, right? Mm-hmm. Christ already led the perfect Christ life. That's who we should be looking for as our example, as our person to follow, right? That's why we call ourselves Christians is because we're following his example. I liked this next part too. It seemed a little bit uh, like a tangent as well, but I really liked what he was talking about back to these three things that it, you know, that grow and impart the Christ life to us, right? Being baptism, belief, and communion or uh, mass um, is like, these might seem like kind of weird things that their physical acts are really what's going to help us grow this relationship with God. He points out that we look at, you know, God is this spiritual, you know, metaphysical more than human being. And so it's strange to think about a physical natural act such as eating and drinking and to bring us closer to him. And baptism as well. What's dunking me under the water going to do? Um, but he points out that God never meant man to be a purely spiritual creature. That's why he uses material things like the bread and the wine to put the new life into us, right? He designed us with spirit, but also a body. And so he understands that it helps the, us the to benefit, have these things. You know, that's the thing. We we don't do things for God. Yeah. And the things that God asks us to do aren't for him. It's for us, right? He's God. He doesn't need our help with anything. If he's asking us to do something, it's because he knows it's going to be good for us and it's going to help us, right? I I underlined where Lewis says, we may think this rather crude and unspiritual, talking about communion and baptism. Um, But he says, God does not. He invented eating. He likes matter. He invented it, right? Um, you know, and we expect God sometimes to only work in supernatural ways, but he created nature. He created the laws of nature. He invented all of science. Yeah. You know, why wouldn't he use that? He yeah. likes those things. That's why he made them. Yeah, it kind of points out a tendency in a lot of people, and myself included probably, but just to not quite value like matter and physical things on the same level as, you know, spiritual things that are happening but really they can be quite connected and i like that yeah god likes matter he created it it's not a bad thing that we have these you know physical symbols and elements to our relationship with god lewis pointed out something um and this is why i highly recommend if you've never read the chronicles of narnia read mere Christianity and then go read the Chronicles of Narnia because you'll notice how many of the ideas that Lewis lays out in mere Christianity are represented in the Chronicles of Narnia. Um, But I underline this part where he says, we do know that no man can be saved except through Christ. We do not know that only those who know him can be saved through him. Which come that you see that idea play out in the last battle. At the very end of the last battle, um, if you've never read it, there's Aslan, who's the god 
figure, and then there's Tash, who is represents the devil, and there's a man who gets into heaven at the end of the book and meets Aslan, and Aslan tells him everything that he thought he was doing in the name of Tash, he was actually doing in the name of Aslan, because he was living his life the way that Aslan would have wanted him to. He was doing good things, but he had been brought up in a country that worshipped Tash. And so he thought he didn't his know spirit Aslan's knew name. Aslan, but he called him by the wrong name, basically. Yeah. And he viewed Aslan as the devil. Um, yeah. And he, it was just that he got the two mixed up because he grew up in the wrong up. spot. You know? yeah. And I think this is very controversial. I don't think there's a whole lot of Christians, especially in the United States, maybe who would agree with Lewis's view on this but to me it's not necessarily Lewis's view as much as it is him reminding us and pointing out how little we understand about exactly what happens when we get saved right and he talked about that in the last chapter he you know he lays out some of the things that he the way he suspects it works but he says multiple times if his view doesn't help you forget about it because he's almost like guaranteed to be wrong on several points about it. You know, that's the thing. It's such a complicated idea and it's so beyond our understanding that, you know, if you feel like you understand completely what exactly happens when you get saved, it's like, you're wrong. (laughs) But I like that. I like, I love it when I am reading this and I'm like, Oh, I remember him showing this in one of his other books, you know, he kind of, and finishes off the chapter talking about um, another possible objection to this whole process of, you know, people getting to know God and, you know, getting the Christ life to start in them. Um, it's like, why is God doing all this kind of behind enemy lines? Secret. Why is he working in secret? Yeah. What's with all the cloak and dagger? Yeah. Why doesn't he just come down, show himself, blow everyone away mm-hmm. and yeah, show himself to the whole world and everybody sees, you know, the majesty and has no other option but to, you know, determine one way or another yeah well that's for or against him that's what lewis points out he's like he doesn't think people have really thought that through like christians do believe that is going to happen that's but he says and i underlined lewis writes when that happens it is the end of the world (laughs) right uh it's like you can't have god if god shows up here you don't have a choice anymore of, you know, getting to decide. And he points out, I loved it, because um, it reminded me again that this was a, originally a broadcast talk that he did during World War II. Um, I do not suppose you you and I would have thought much of a Frenchman who waited till the Allies were marching into Germany and then announced he was on our side, yeah. right? God will invade. But I wonder whether people who ask God to interfere openly and directly in in our world quite realize what it will be like when he does. Yeah. Yeah. And it, it made a lot of sense to me thinking back to just the one of the most unique things that I can figure out about Christianity in relation to any other uh, religion is that it's a relationship. Um, it's not just us trying to be good to please God. It's the result of this relationship that we, he makes us good. We talked about that earlier. Um, and as I thought about it, I realized 
no relationships are made at gunpoint <laughs> is kind of the best way I can think about that. Um, they're made naturally, organically. Um, and so that's the time that we have here before God comes down in force and, you know, it all hits the fan is when we can develop this this uh, this honest relationship, this genuine relationship with Christ. Um, once he's here in his splendor, it's going to be so polarizing. Everybody's going to, you know, it's going to... You're either going to be... You're not going to love him so much that you're incapable of doing, feeling any other way towards yeah. him except for a desire to be with him, or you're going to be so terrified out of your mind and yeah. maybe hate him so much that you want nothing but to get away from him and hide, yeah. you know? Nobody's going to be left on the fence at that point. Yeah. It's going to completely split it down the middle um, one way or the other. Lewis says, God is holding back to give us that chance. It will not last forever. We must take it or leave it. And that's it. That's the last line of book two. And that was also the end of the broadcast talk. So the first two books here have been originally um, were radio broadcasts that Lewis gave to troops during World War II. Um, and then the second, next two books, book th books three and four, were ones that he wrote. And then somebody, I think after Lewis's death, compiled all four of these and put them into the book known as Mere Christianity. Maybe it was while he was still alive, but I'm not sure. Um, but yeah, next chapter is going to be on the three parts of morality. Yeah. And all so, of book three, the whole next book coming up is on Christian behavior. Yes. What so, this Christ life should actually look like. Mm -hmm. So a lot more on what to do after you get saved. Right. Which is pretty cool. Again, I think just since I've been growing up in a Christian camp and spent a lot of time in a Christian camp setting, I've really spent a lot of time thinking and talking about being saved, you know, yeah. which is really good. But really, there's not a whole lot, at least that I've been exposed to, of talk about like con like maturing and growing and yeah, like this whole next part of the book, mm -hmm. what it actually looks like. The How do you live a Christian life? Yeah. Yeah. So I'm excited to get into that. Yeah. Hope you guys are enjoying this so far. We highly recommend you pick up a, po a podcast. Haha, <laughs> a copy of Mere Christianity by C.S. Lewis and anything else that C.S. Lewis has ever written, I recommend. Um, yeah, I'm Michael. That's Walter. We've never said that at the end of any other episode. I don't know why. I just threw it in there. I'm just, I never know how to end it. I just start talking and talking.